When I was a kid, I learned to fish in streams and mountain lakes in Colorado using tiny little hooks and salmon eggs to catch trout. You'd just kind of lay it there and you'd watch the fish swim up and take it. As I grew up and we moved to Oklahoma, I learned to put a minnow on a hook and drop it pretty deep off a dock and sit there for hours at times. And we'd catch crappies and sometimes smallmouth bass. Later, as I grew older, we would use fake worms and lures to catch the same kinds of fish. And after college, I moved back to Colorado and would frequently go with a couple of friends fly fishing on the Arkansas River, throwing flies and catching rainbow and brown trout. Now that we're Minnesotans, I can tell you I've never caught a walleye or a muskie, but I did catch my first northern pike a couple of weeks ago, and it was quite a bit of fun. I cannot tell you that I'm a great fisherman. In fact, I'm probably not even an average fisherman. But with a couple of good lessons along the way and being observant of those around me, I've learned how to fish. For being a fisherman isn't about catching fish, it is about trying. And I've been able to catch enough by trying a lot. And this morning, we're going to be talking about fishing, and we're going to be talking about fishermen. This is our second week in our series called Follow Me, considering what it means to follow Jesus. And much more significantly, much more specifically, what did it mean when Jesus said to his disciples, follow me? Because if you listen closely to the world around you, if you listen to the messages the world gives you, we tend to define following Jesus not by his call towards us, but by what we think is enough, what we think is sufficient, what we think is reasonable, what we think might possibly please God, or at worst, what we think is convenient. For when Jesus said, follow me, do you think he meant, just take a short walk with me? Let's go to the end of the block and come back. No, no reasonable person would think that. And certainly no one reading the New Testament could come with that idea. Or do you think that he meant merely hold on to my words as wise sayings? Possibly put them on some cups or greeting cards or calendars, maybe buy a t-shirt and make sure to wear your cross jewelry. Is that what he meant? Again, no. You cannot possibly read the Gospels and walk away believing that's what he meant. And of course, those are absurd examples. But do you think that he meant following me as just believing in me? Merely acknowledging that he exists while simultaneously not changing your life at all, not being transformed at all, not seeking after his words, not obeying him, but just believing. And just believing is enough. Friends, you won't find that in this book either. We are surrounded by a lame, insufficient, halfway cultural Christianity. We're surrounded by perspectives of Jesus that proclaim that he is okay with absolutely everything and that all that Jesus wants for us is to be the happiest, most fulfilled, healthy, comfortable self we can be. That if you can do what you want and feel fulfilled by that, you should... You should do it. You should chase it. As if just claiming his name and never following his words is enough. As if claiming his name but never actually being transformed by his gospel is an adequate picture of salvation. 
Listen to these words. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These are the words of Jesus. Does it seem like he lowers the bar to let everyone in? Does it seem like he's teaching, just claim my name and keep on living? No, that seems to be the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. And if you don't seem to follow that, listen to what Jesus says a couple of verses later. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, if we lean into the teachings of Jesus, we find some incredibly hard and tough teaching. Teaching that seems to crush the easy, easy believism that our cultural Christianity pronounces. And it seems to make it clear that many who think they are in won't be. So what do we do? How do we pursue the narrow gate? How do we take a confidence in Him that we actually do know Him? The answer? Jesus says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. And as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at His methods, looking at His actions, listening to His teaching, and watching the responses of the disciples, we're going to get a much better picture of what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to see that. And just about every week, I'm going to ask you over the next couple of months to prayerfully read through the book of Matthew. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to knock it out in a day, though some of you could. That doesn't mean you've got to knock it out this month, though some of you could. Let's just intentionally start cracking open the book and praying our way through it. God, what do you have in here? What are you saying? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Because that's what we're after in this series. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And as I've mentioned, our series will center in the book of Matthew. That's why I'm pointing you there. And last week we started, we began in chapter 9, because this gospel was written by the disciple Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus walk up to Matthew, a tax collector, the lowest of the low in their culture, a traitor and a sinner. The text makes that clear. Jesus walks up to him and says the very words that we're considering. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew does the last thing a Jewish reader of this text would have ever expected. He walks away from a lucrative job as a tax collector. He walks away from a lifestyle that the world would have professed. He walks away from everything. He testifies to that 
in Matthew 19. He walks away from everything and then proceeds to invite all of his friends, all of these tax collectors, all of these sinners to a big party so they can meet Jesus. And then, of course, his life continues and he writes this gospel so that even writing an account of the words and works of Jesus Christ in his gospel, we would know and we would understand that Jesus is king. That's Matthew's whole theme. That the king has the right to ask you anything. The king can call you to anything because he's the king. Matthew also wants you to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. That's why Matthew, more than any other New Testament gospel, that's why he quotes the Old Testament more than anyone. Because he constantly wants his Jewish audience, these Jewish readers, to see these Old Testament passages and, and to see Jesus as the fulfillment of those. So that they would understand that he's the king and he's the Messiah because he wanted his readers to be without excuse as to what it meant to know and to follow Jesus. He wanted them to know who Jesus was. And he wanted them to know what it meant to follow Jesus. When Jesus called out to Matthew and said, follow me, it changed everything for him. Absolutely everything. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple more stories. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4, looking at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You didn't know this. You could break Jesus' ministry into kind of three parts. He basically spent his first year in a private ministry. He spent his second year in a public ministry, growing influence, and he spent his third year trying not to be killed, basically being rejected the whole third year. So at the beginning of his ministry, he's, he's starting a public ministry, possibly in his second year. That's where we're at in Matthew 4, verses 17 through 23. Let's look at the text. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at first, we may not know why he says that. We may not understand why is this Jesus' initial message. Well, if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you would know in the preceding verses that John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one called to come before Jesus to announce that the king is coming, has been arrested. That the forerunner, who was known for his one message, John had only one message, and that was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message, literally word for word, that John began with, Jesus now picks up and begins to speak. Why? Because he is taking the offer of the kingdom that John was putting before them and he's fulfilling it. He's connecting his ministry to the Old Testament. He's connecting his ministry to John the Baptist. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. And so as he begins his ministry, and he ties it to the Old Testament, he ties it to the fulfillment of everything, what do you think he does? How do you think Jesus begins his first years of public ministry? What would you do? Would you hire a PR firm? Would you get all your ducks in an order? Would you get a good marketing guy? Would you start gathering crowds? What would you do? Because what Jesus does is entirely significant. Look at verse 18. 
at the beginning of his ministry. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus called disciples. He called individuals to himself. He called individuals and said, follow me. And if you synchronize all the gospel accounts, and there's some great books that can do this for you, if you line up all the stories told by Matthew and all the stories given by Mark and Luke and John, the different perspectives of the same events, you would find that this isn't the first time that Jesus meets Peter and Andrew. That might catch you off guard. John, the disciple, records in John 1 that the first, that they were first disciples of John the Baptist. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you, but let's glance quickly at John 1, 35 through 42. This is what John writes. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He's talking about Peter and Andrew. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? It's a funny question. We want to get to know you better. He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What this does is it testifies to us that Andrew and also Peter knew who Jesus was. They spent an entire day literally with him, even recognizing him as the Messiah, that is the Christ, before they followed him. That's different than Matthew, right? That's different than Matthew's calls. Because when Jesus meets Matthew, a colossal sinner, he immediately follows him. He immediately gives up everything and walks away. Whereas Peter and Andrew meet and interact with Jesus. They get to know him. They know who he is before they're called to follow. If you pay attention to the Gospels, this gives a lot of leeway to testimonies, doesn't it? Because if you're paying attention, you would see that there are some who come from radical backgrounds, radical sinful backgrounds, who are saved instantaneously and give up everything like, wham! And there are others who walk in religious circles for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes years before they follow him. And Jesus has both of these kinds of people in his group of disciples which is to say, of course, there's going to be different testimonies amongst us. There are some in our midst who've been called from reckless, grievous sin. Actually, that's all of us, right? It's all of us. It doesn't matter whether you steal cookies or hand grenades. You were dead and he saved you, and yet some of us wandered through the world's path 
never engaging Christianity, never engaging the church, and then Jesus got us. Whack. And some of us have been in church for years when we heard and we finally understood who Jesus was. When we finally started to take heart what it meant to believe in Jesus, what it meant to understand that He died on the cross for my sins, what it means that Jesus loves me so much that He would take my place For some of us, it takes years to understand that. And we see this micro picture in Jesus' group of disciples. He saves people from different places. But what he says and he does with Peter and Andrew is significant. We need to look back at that. While he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They were casting their nets into the sea. They were working. This seems to suggest they weren't anticipating Jesus walking up on them. They were in the middle of something. They were fishermen. And my guess is they were way better than me at catching fish. And just like Matthew, who was also in the middle of his work, Jesus interrupts their life and says, follow me. But this time, he adds far more. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a connected idea, as if you could not follow him and not become a fisher of men. It's as if to say, you used to catch fish and now you will catch people. To Simon and Andrew, there's an implication to following him. There's an effect. It does something to you. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will form you. I I will shape you. I will take you and I will slowly transform you. Not to become a better moral agent. That is to say, not to make you a better rule follower. Jesus' hope for us is not to make us better at following rules. And when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, it's not about making them feel better about themselves. As if Jesus is a pop psychologist trying to help their self-image. No, Jesus says, I'm going to form you, I'm going to shape you, and I'm going to transform you into something... And you know what he wanted to transform them into? Himself. Because at that very moment, Jesus was fishing for men. And he caught two. At that moment, what he had in mind for Peter and Andrew is that I'm going to slowly shape you, form you, mold you, and transform you so that you become more and more and more like me. That's Jesus, not Ben. And as we watch their training over the next couple of weeks, we will see that indeed they were formed, and they were shaped, and they were transformed into fishers of men, and they were sent out. So the question needs to be asked, is this what it means to follow Jesus, to be a fisher of men? Let's flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll camp there for a moment. 
And I want us to see what Paul wrote to the entire Corinthian church. Because if Paul writes this to an entire church, then we can internalize it as a church. This is what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you will, this is a picture of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 reminds us, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What Paul writes in Ephesians adds to what he says in 2 Corinthians. That if you want to know what it means to be in Christ... For as to the second Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, if you want to know what it means to be in Christ, you understand what he writes to the Ephesians. That if you want to be included into Christ, you hear the gospel of salvation and you believe. You believe. So if anyone is in Christ, if you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are a new creation. You are brand new. What Paul writes is the gospel immediately reshapes you. It reforms you. It transforms you from an old creation to a brand stinking new one. New car smell and all. The old is past, the new has come, but he doesn't end there. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, if you follow Paul's words to the Corinthians church, and then by proxy, his words to Calvary Church, that is you, this morning, listening into this sermon. When you are saved, that is, when you believe, when you are in Christ, you are a new creation who has been reconciled to God through Christ. That means, having believed, All of your sins are forgiven. All of your debt is paid. Everything you've ever done wrong, every evil thought you've ever had, every bad plan you've ever conceived, all of that is forgiven in Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled to God. And, not either or, not if this is convenient, and Christ is, gives you the ministry of reconciliation. That's part of the new formation. That's part of your new creation. You're given a ministry of reconciliation. He explains that in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul's explanation is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world. He's forgiving you, and he's not counting your sins against you, and then he's entrusting you with a message. 
He's given it to you. You've been empowered then to take it. It's an assignment that's bestowed upon you. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's who you are. That's what Paul is trying to get to. And so he concludes in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which is to say, when you follow Jesus, that is, when you believe in Jesus, you are transformed. You are a new creation. You're changed into an ambassador for Christ. And you're given the ministry of reconciliation. In the words of Jesus, you are a fisher of men. And if that is too conceptual, let me bring it down to the ground. When you come to Jesus, you're a colossal sinner. Every last one of us. You don't believe me, ask your mom. She'll testify. It doesn't matter if you're the youngest one here. Emerly, wherever she is. Big center. She's probably like seven days old. Every last one of us is a colossal sinner. And the people in our lives have watched us sin. They know our sinful nature. They know our selfishness. They know that I will put me far above everything else in the world. It's all about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I want to do. It's about what makes me happy. And then Jesus interrupts that. He breaks into that. And he forgives our sin. This is all that you were choosing, all the evil you were doing. I am forgiving all of that, that literally on the cross, Jesus takes all of that from us. The punishment that's due for our sin, Jesus takes it on himself and gives us his righteousness and calls us a new creation. And what happens in that moment is now you become an example. You become a model. You become a prototype, if you will, of one who is forgiven. One who's been redeemed. So that such anyone in the world who has watched you, who has seen your life, who knows and can testify to what a colossal sinner you are, will start thinking to themselves, huh, something changed with that guy. He's different. Something weird is going on. Like, why do you, why did you stop doing that? And there are stories amongst us like that, right? I remember in college, I got a job and I was in a warehouse. We were working through some things and I worked there for about, oh, probably five or six weeks. And this group of guys said, this is salty, by the way. A group of guys came to me and said, we got a question for you. What's that? He goes, why don't you use the F word? It's fudge, in case you wondered. Why, why don't you talk like that? The rest of it, like, why? Well, I got to explain that Jesus saved me. And I used to have a crazy foul mouth. And part of his sanctification, part of his new creation in me, part of his transformation in me is I changed my language. It's just an example. It's all it is. 
But it's an example of the way that we live as forgiven people, as we live as redeemed. What we get to do now is go into the world and preach that I was once condemned and now I'm free. I was once burdened by the weight of my sin, but but now I'm free. I was once overwhelmed by my own depravity, unable to stop sinning, and now I am free. That's the redemption that we have in Jesus. That's what Paul is explaining to the Corinthians. That's what we see lived out in Matthew. So when Matthew, the tax collector, invites all these people in, hey, let's see Jesus. And they watched him the rest of his life. I have no idea how many tax collectors will be in heaven, but I bet there's a lot because of Matthew. And I have no doubt that Peter and Andrew saved a number of fishermen as well because they watched their lives and they saw them change. When Jesus walks up and says, follow me, he means something. And he means something specific. And I think the disciples got it. Watch Peter and Andrew. Watch their response in verse 20. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Middle of the workday, in the middle of what they were doing, in the middle of boats they might have owned, nets they might have owned, in the middle of their day, Jesus said, follow me, and they left everything behind. The text continues, verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left left their boat and their father and followed him. They left everything. So let's ask the next obvious question. Does following Jesus mean that you leave everything behind? Does it mean that you have to walk away from your boat, your nets, your job, your family? Honestly, maybe. I don't know what the call of Jesus is on your life. I I don't know. I've known people in their middle stage of their career that Jesus has popped into, and like six weeks later, they're doing something else somewhere else. I have no idea when Jesus says to you, follow me, what the implication he has for you is. And I mean that. But what we see in the text, what we can glean from the examples of Matthew and Andrew and Peter and James and John and what we get from Paul as he's writing to the church at Corinthians is that when Jesus says, follow me, something changes. You who were once an old creation becomes a new creation and you leave things that are behind and what you leave behind is an old life. It's old sin. It's old worldliness. It's old perspectives. It's seeing everything through the lens of the world. And in Jesus Christ, you who have believed in Him, you who have been saved by Him, you who are a new creation... 
You are the member of a new kingdom, which means he gives you a new perspective, which means Jesus changes everything. So if you don't look at your job through the lens of Jesus, you're not submitting that to him. And if you don't look at your family through the lens of Jesus, you're not submitting that to him. And if you don't look at your retirement, your house, all of your possessions through the lens of Jesus, that means you're not submitting those things to him. And I'm not saying you can't have a house. I own one. I pray about it. I'm not saying you can't have a retirement. I'm not saying you can't have a job. I'm not saying you can't have a family. I've got all of those things. But we have to rightly see them from the perspective of Jesus and not from the perspective of the world. For we are new creations and Jesus has changed us. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says, I will form you, I will shape you, I will mold you, I will transform you. Friends, the first thing, the first lesson about being a fisherman is this. Realize that you're a fisherman. What makes a fisherman is trying, not catching. You saw a guy stand on the boat, he's holding a fishing pole, he had a line in the line. You go, hey, look, there's a fisherman. Being a fisherman is about trying. It's not necessarily about catching fish. But when we come to the realization, I am a fisherman, it starts to change our perspective. It starts to change the lenses by which we see things, which is to say that when you're in a restaurant and your waitress who's totally frazzled comes and brings you cold food, you have an opportunity there with a Jesus lens to see her as something more than a servant of your mouth and your stomach. You have the opportunity to to love her, to serve her, to be compassionate to her, to show her Jesus. When we come by anyone in our lives, we have the opportunity to show them Jesus. That's what it means to be a fisherman, to start opening our eyes and realize that in Jesus Christ, we've been transformed. And that one of those things is that we're a fisherman. Friends, when I first started fishing, I didn't catch anything. I didn't know how. You know what I did? I started watching fishermen. Started watching my dad, see what he did. Started watching my brother, see what he did. We started watching fishing shows sometimes, thinking we could get some tips. You start asking questions. And if I could emulate what the fishermen around me were doing, if I could look at my dad or my brother or others and go, huh, he's casting over there. I should cast over there. Hey, he's using this kind of bait. I should use that kind of bait. If I could follow what they were doing, I started catching fish. If you've realized you're a fisherman and you don't know how to catch fish, can I give you this suggestion? Start watching Fishers of Men. 
Put yourself in situations with older, wiser, mature believers who are fishers of men and start watching their lives. For you will see where they fish. You will see what they use. The illustration is going to fall apart soon. Fishers of men fish. Doesn't mean they catch anything. We fish. And if you're not sure, if you want help, if you're not sure what that looks like, I'll make it a whole lot more practical for you. Besides just find an older believer. That's the first one. Jesus built people. That's what we're going to see over and over here. Jesus pushed away the crowds. He built people. If you want me to make it more practical, I'll give you these suggestions. If you're a man, every Friday morning in that room at 6 a.m., we have a group of guys called the Contenders. We might as well call it fishing lessons. We gather together to talk about fishing. How do we get built up in the gospel, and how do we contend for the faith? If you're a man, you've never been there, I'd encourage you to show up Friday mornings at 6. And if you say Friday mornings at 6 is a bad time for you, and I understand it can be for some, we pick that time because most people have nothing to do at 6 o'clock on a Friday morning but sleep. If that doesn't work for you and you still want to be a part of something, let me know and I'll find you somebody or something. And if you're a woman, might I suggest to you that we have a women's study starting on Tuesday mornings and Wednesday nights. So if you work... You can come on Wednesday nights. If you don't, and your stay-at-home mom and Tuesday mornings work for you, I would suggest that because what you'd find in that kind of study is a group of fisherwomen. Not sure if that's a term. It'd be a great place to surround yourself with fisher people, people who fish. And, of course, community groups kick off next week as well. Friends, we're a church. We're a church of broken, insufficient people who are not in and of ourselves enough. But we serve a very sufficient Savior who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who has made us into a new creation and transformed us into something else. And if we're following Him, He's called us to be a fisherman. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word we find truth. In your word we find hope. In your word we find an understanding that you loved us so much that even while we were still in the midst of our sin, that you would send your son to die on the cross for us to take our place to redeem us. Father, someone in our lives told us about you. I don't know if it was a mom or a dad or a youth pastor or a friend or a wise adult. Somebody told us about Jesus. Father, would you build in us an understanding? Would you continue to form us and shape us and transform us into what it means to follow Jesus? And would you give us a greater vision of fishing for your kingdom? 
that's going to look differently for everyone, but would you give us a greater vision of what it means to fish for your kingdom? That we could love people, that we could serve people, that we could point people to Jesus, that they might have the same forgiveness that we've received. Thank you, Father, for your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.